led by our pastor feast, Vanessa. Um, so last week, Pastor Vanessa kicked off the series with a message about how following Jesus means following the path to peace. Pastor Vanessa shared three guideposts for us to follow to make sure that we're on the right track to peace. First of all, we need to make sure that we're in unity with God. Second, we need to have love for others. And third, we need to have humility. So today we're going to talk about guidepost number one, union with God. Specifically, we're going to look at how we pursue union with God with the help of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit will lead us as we seek to make peace with the world around us. So today we'll be studying Jesus's promise to his disciples to provide them with an advocate in the Holy Spirit. We'll be looking at John 14, 15 through 27. In this passage, Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples, and he's just told them that they're going to betray him and that he'll be going away to a place that they cannot immediately follow. So let's read the passage. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. God the Father. Furthermore, Jesus clarifies what it means to love him, and he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. He tells his disciples that although he will no longer be around to continue to teach them, he will send the spirit of truth to remind them of his teachings. It's the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, that allows us to discern whether we're acting in accordance with Jesus's teachings. So by telling the disciples that Jesus, that God is sending the Holy Spirit in Jesus's name, Jesus is proclaiming his unity with God. Jews at the time would have been familiar with the concept of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described in the second sentence of the first book of the Bible. 
Genesis 1-2, which says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters during the creation of the world. The prophets Ezekiel and Micah talked about how the Spirit of God descended upon them and spoke through them in order to call out Israel's sin. Isaiah 11-2 describes the Spirit of God as a spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and of might, of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Jesus' description of the Holy Spirit is consistent with how the Spirit is described in the Old Testament. John 16, 5 through 15 says, But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, much more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine, and that is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. In this passage, used for advocate here is paraclete. It comes from the two root words para, which means beside or alongside, and kalein, meaning to call. So this word paraclete literally means one who is called to come alongside. The term was originally used in the Greek to describe the idea of someone who was called into a court of law to come to one's aid. So similar to what an attorney does for you. Paraclete is someone who speaks the truth and brings evidence to back it up. Jesus says that the paraclete will prove the world to be in the wrong, wrong about its understanding of sin and the price that must be paid for sin, wrong about what happens to those who are righteous, and wrong about how God administers justice to the world. So the Last Supper isn't the only place where Jesus, where the Holy Spirit is described in the Gospels. Before Jesus' ministry even began, John the Baptist prophesied about Jesus by saying, in Matthew 3, 11 through 13, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this is a fairly violent image. At first glance, it sounds like John is talking about this idea of Jesus and God um, separating the believers from the unbelievers and then punishing the unrighteous unbelievers to be burned in an unquenchable fire. The series is focused on peacemaking among all image bearers of God. So how do we reconcile Jesus' winnowing fork and this fire 
with the idea that the Holy Spirit is here to bring us peace. Let's look at what John's words mean. It says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Like I mentioned, this verse is often used out of context to depict how God will separate the believers from the unbelievers, the righteous from the sinners. But this isn't what John is saying. Baptism is done for those who believe, not for those who don't believe. So as followers of Christ, we can expect to be baptized with both the Holy Spirit and with fire. Baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire in this verse is equated to clearing the threshing floor, gathering the wheat, and burning the chaff with fire. Threshing and winnowing are acts of purification that allow wheat grains to be turned into something wholesome and beneficial. I know a lot of us have gotten into bread making recently during the pandemic, me not included, but I doubt that any of us has actually gone through the process of growing wheat, harvesting it, threshing and winnowing it, and then turning it into wheat flour. So I'll walk us through the process of what that looks like. Chaff describes all of the inedible parts of a stalk of wheat. So it's that dry hole that you can't eat that surrounds the grain itself, and it's also that stalk of wheat that you cut down that the, wheat, the grain grows on. So threshing is the process of taking those stalks of wheat and then beating them violently to basically shake the grains off of that stalk. And then threshing is followed by winnowing, which is a less violent process of basically applying air, whether you're, uh, you have the grains in a basket and you're kind of like tossing them up in the air, or you're simply dumping them on the ground, or you have a fan. In this case, the winnowing fork would be that fan. A fan to blow the lighter husks off of the grains and then allow the heavier grains to fall down. So the process of beating and blowing means the useless, non-beneficial husk that surrounds the, the grain is stripped off and destroyed. And what remains is a precious, vulnerable seed that can become another plant or can become food that nourishes a body. So one of the first steps to being a peacemaker is the purification of our hearts. When Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and with fire, he's purifying our hearts, stripping away the protective outer layers, the coatings that don't do us any good. The Holy Spirit facilitates this process by speaking truth to us, sometimes gently, sometimes harshly, but always with the goal of unifying us with God, and in doing so, glorifying Jesus. So, how do we tell when the Holy Spirit is speaking truth to us? To be able to understand its voice, to discern its voice, we need to understand its character. John chapters 14 and 16, the two chapters we've already looked at, provide a rich description of who the spirit of truth is. So let's take a look at what these chapters tell us about the spirit of truth. First of all, the Holy Spirit helps us to keep God's commands, and the Holy Spirit teaches us and reminds us of Jesus' words. In verses 15, 21, and 23, of John 14, Jesus says that to love him is to keep his commands. Therefore, the urging of the Holy Spirit will always be consistent with what Jesus commands us. So what does Jesus command? It's impossible to summarize this in a single top 10 list. The Sermon on the Mount is a good place to start, but for the most part, Jesus doesn't function in lists of rules. Whenever the Pharisees approached him to ask him, an ethical question to say, what should we do in this particular situation? Jesus never responds by saying, you should do X, Y, and Z. It's never a list. Jesus always asks the question 
to get the person to think about what God's intent is in that particular command. Or Jesus tells them a parable so that it's not the single one-size-fits-all answer. We can trust the Holy Spirit to help us reason through the intent of God's commandments and to apply the lessons of parables to our situations as appropriate. Next, the spirit of truth is unknown to the world, but known to us as believers. Similarly, the spirit of truth will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Because the spirit of truth has come to prove the world wrong, it shouldn't come as a surprise that oftentimes what the spirit is telling you will be in contrast. It'll be contrast. from God. Furthermore, it speaks truth to us beyond that which Jesus was able to share here on earth. And in doing so, it glorifies Jesus. All of these qualities of the Holy Spirit help us to become peacemakers by guiding us through the process of becoming more like Christ. It's that formational process that the Spirit is walking through or with us in. So it can do this by bringing certain scriptures to mind or by revealing knowledge to us beyond what we can immediately see. The spirit doesn't strictly work with the things that are seen. And so because of that, sometimes it takes faith to follow its leading. This means we have to have faith, but it also means that we have to be able to tell the difference between when we're hearing from the spirit and when it's just our own thoughts that are speaking to us. So how do we discern the voice of the Holy Spirit as opposed to our own thoughts? And how do we tell when the spirit is convicting us versus us just experiencing guilt on our own. First, because the Spirit only speaks what comes from God, it will always be consistent with Scripture. Therefore, we need to understand and memorize Scripture in order to be able to tell the difference between the Spirit's voice and our own worldly knowledge. This is an important reason why it's important for us to stay in the Word, to read our Bibles every single day, and to continue to be in that relationship conversing with God and figuring out what it is that he's trying to reveal to us. Next, the spirit always glorifies Jesus, not us and not another human being. A cult of personality is never a sign of the Holy Spirit. Neither is a focus on yourself, whether that focus is positive or negative. The spirit will always lead you back to God and compel you to involve others, not just require you to rely on your own strength or knowledge. If your thoughts are telling you that you're not trying hard enough or that you're not a good enough person or that you're not worthy, that is not of the Holy Spirit. James 3, 14 through 18 says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So James chapter 3 is all about taming the tongue, incidentally. The tongue corrupts the whole body, James says. 
and the tongue speaks what's in our hearts. So I think the tongue is a good place to start when it comes to checking our motives and moving forward on the path to peace. For practical application, I'd like us to think about what commandments in particular that we're struggling to follow and invite the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and to convict us. The fruit of that conviction will be made clear through the words that you use to describe that particular situation. So a constant struggle for me is being able to forgive people who've hurt me. Particularly right now, I continue to struggle with the idea of forgiving people who hurt me at my last job. So Jesus commands us to forgive. He tells us explicitly that before we even come to make worship to him, we should just leave our gift at the altar and go and forgive and be reconciled to the people that have wronged us. But forgiveness can be tricky. Sometimes we think we've forgiven someone and moved on, but what's really happening is that that particular sin just isn't bothering us that much in that particular moment, and we downplay its significance to our lives. But every once in a while, those hurts will come up again, and the words that we choose to use in that moment that those hurts come up will reveal what's in our hearts. So um, I left that past job um, that was just really toxic, and I'm in a much, much better place now, which is great. Um, but the resentment springs up every once in a while. Particularly, I still keep in contact with a lot of my friends from my old job, and once in a while, they will tell me about pieces of gossip or news that affect the people that hurt me. So I have to constantly balance this idea of trying to forgive these people with telling myself that those hurts don't matter anymore because I'm not there, and that it doesn't really matter when actually it does. Because again, something will come back and it'll bring these things out of my heart. And in the words I say, it's pretty apparent that I haven't forgiven. Like there's still this darkness and this lack of forgiveness that reside in me, and I can very clearly tell it through the words that I use. Matthew 12, 34 through 37 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. In my struggle to forgive, my words reveal the state of my heart. So when my friends share these pieces of gossip or these pieces of news with me about people who've hurt me before, if I react in a way that doesn't glorify God, if I start to feel like, good, I hope bad things happen to that people because they hurt me and they deserve pain, that is clearly not of the Holy Spirit. So how do, do I respond in a way that honors Jesus' teachings? Sometimes this just looks like silence. Sometimes it's asking my friends to further elaborate about what's hurting them in this situation rather than focusing on my pain. And sometimes it's about acknowledging the pain that I'm still feeling and the ways that I've been hurt. But choosing to use words that accurately describe the situation and the people who I'm struggling with, instead of dehumanizing in my heart by giving them labels that make them not seem human. I have to remember that everyone, whether that person is my friend or my foe, is an image bearer of God. And it's only through the work of the spirit of truth in my life that this truth remains clear to me. So what's your struggle 
Is there a relationship in your life where the spirit of truth has been trying to convict you? When you reflect on that relationship, what words do you use to describe the dynamic? Are your words honest and humble? Or do you use your words like a weapon, like chaff protecting the wheat? I encourage us to actively seek the Spirit's guidance and to invite the Spirit to purge our hearts of any selfish motivations. Only by allowing the Spirit to purify our hearts can we begin the journey to peace. So I'd like to pray over us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for sending your advocate, for sending the Spirit of truth to descend on us, to convict us, and to convince us of truth, Lord. I thank you for the ways that you bring evidence to us of what your intent is and help us to continue to discern how to apply your teachings in every moment, Lord. I pray that you would convict us of the ways that we are broken, of the ways that we need to be restored, Lord. And I just pray that you would continue to walk alongside us as we pursue that path to peace. Amen. So Nan spoke about the spirit, um, the spirit of truth. And uh, the spirit of truth convicts us um, both individually and corporately as a body. And one of the ways I feel like, um, one of the things that is happening in, in recent uh, moments and recent seasons of, of, of our culture is uh, there's a little bit of a reckoning in, in our culture, in our society. In, uh, and uh, it's, it's almost like, a, like the church and America in our, in our, in, we're in a bit of like a puberty phase. Like we're all just learning to grow up and like it's awkward and we don't know what to do and our voice is cracking all the time and it just, just is a really awkward phase. And, um, uh, <laughs> and one of the ways that the church is, I think, coming to grips with itself is, uh, one of the ways that the spirit is convicting the church as a whole is, it, it's, it's in the ideas or in the places of which we have been um, uh, bitter, that we have been selfish, uh, in the areas that we've been boastful. And if you look at the James 3 passage that Nan shared, it's those things that are demonic. It's not like, you know, Hollywood, you know, conjuring <laughs> stuff that's demonic. I, I, you know, that's, that's for a whole other conversation. Um, but in the James 3 passage, it talks about it's that stuff. Envy, bitterness, selfishness, boastfulness. That is what's demonic. And... It's the spirit of peace. The Holy Spirit that guides us into peacemaking is what is of Christ. Is what of the Holy, it comes from the Holy Spirit. And I share that with you um, to process more Nan's message, but also to give this like, it's, it sounds, this sound, now this sounds selfish and self-serving, but our values are up on the, on the church website now. <laughs> and the board we got together, um, and we, we prayerfully had this conversation about what, what are the values that represent our church and our church community. And I really encourage you to check it out. Um, it's in our values little tab over there. But here are the opening words. Here, here's like the kind of overview of our church value. It says, we are a multi-ethnic community of Christ followers that are committed to the word of God, to accompanying, accompanying each other in the journey of life and working toward cultivating justice and shalom both locally and globally. And so there's so much to unpack there, but just the first five words about how we are in a multi-ethnic community. It's kind of hard to see online, um, but for like the five, six of you that are uh, there, uh, like 
there's a, um, there's a kaleidoscopic uh, hue of melanin <laughs> in this place, and it's, it's beautiful, and represents the kingdom of God. And it wasn't that long ago, 40 years ago, when, you know, Dr. King said, Sunday's the most segregated time in America. And it's important for us. And we intentionally wrote that we, we are a multi-ethnic community because we want that to be a primary marker of what it means to be the people of God, children of God. We want to, be, we want to represent the kaleidoscopic beauty of God's Imago Dei people. And the church and the world, we're coming to grips with that. And we are, we are in the tension of that. So by the fact, just, the, just by the fact that we exist as a church, that we are a part of this community, we are saying, hey, we, we're in tension with this. We are in tension with this reality that um, in many ways the church has been so um, ethnocentric and it's about us and it's been about what's safe and what's comfortable for us. But as a church, we're pushing back against that. And as we exist and as we do life together, we want to say, we want to pursue this. We want to pursue this. And we want to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us and pursue these spaces. Um, so with that, um, a practical invitation is, if you've never had a Korean barbecue, uh, hit me up, all right? <laughs> um, if you all need recommendations for a good, um, you know, uh, Mexican place, there's so many, place, uh, so many brothers and sisters that we can ask here, right? Um, and... This is part of what makes God's collective beauty what it is. And we need this Holy Spirit to convict us and push us toward that. So um, with that, communion is another another reminder that we are part of a multi-ethnic community. Not just, it's not an ethnocentric thing, but it's a global historical thing. So with that, um, please grab your cups.